Hey everybody, Sean here. The episode you're about to hear, specifically the intro and the outro to the episode, was recorded in February of this year, 2020. Obviously, if you are listening to the show in real time, we're now in September of 2020, and things are mm, different now than they were back then, so there's no mention of a long hiatus or a pandemic or anything else you might think I would mention after all this time away. So I wanted to jump in here real quick to let you know that number one, the show is back, and number two, I'll talk a little bit more about what's been going on since February and what to expect out of the rest of the season on the next episode in two weeks. But for now, accompany me back to a simpler time. Enjoy the show. afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and on today's episode, we've got an original listener-submitted story, plus a tale from the creator of one of fiction's most enduring characters. Now, there's no new review to read today, which isn't all that surprising, since there hasn't been much to review lately, but now that we're back on track, make sure that you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts and leave your review so that I can read and produce it here on the show, the same way I do with the stories. Now, speaking of stories, I've got two for you today. The first is a listener-submitted story by Caroline Roberts called The Hunters. Now, Caroline is a third-year college student studying English and philosophy. For fun, she enjoys writing short stories and terrible spy novels. She's currently interning for CNET, where she writes articles for the health and wellness section. She's hoping to one day write a spy novel that's somewhat decent enough to get published. She's also a lover of Cats, Coffee, and Carl the Fog, which is the name of the fog in San Francisco. And no, I'm not making that up. Speaking of the Bay Area, where Caroline currently finds herself, she wrote this story and a few others while taking the BART, which is the Bay Area Rapid Transit, into San Francisco for her job over the summer. Today will be the first time this story has been publicly available. Now, Caroline doesn't have any other fiction available online at this time, but of course you can see her writing in the health and wellness section of CNET.com. Our second story today will be The Star Trap by one Abraham, better known as Bram, Stoker. Bram Stoker was born in November of 1847 in Dublin, Ireland. He was the third of seven children, and his oldest brother was Sir Thornley Stoker, who was a well-known Irish surgeon. Stoker was a bit of a sickly child and actually was not able to walk until he was seven years old because of that. Fortunately for him, his condition did not persist into early adulthood, and he eventually became a very good athlete, at one point playing soccer for Trinity College in Dublin. It was at Trinity College where he would earn a mathematics degree in preparation for a career in civil service, and upon graduating, Stoker would work at the Dublin Castle for ten years as a civil servant. During that time, he became a theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail, and as a critic, he gave a favorable review to a production of Hamlet, which starred an actor that Stoker admired named Henry Irving. Following that review, Stoker and Irving struck up a friendship, and in the late 1870s, Irving offered Stoker a position as manager of the Lyceum Theatre in London's West End, which Stoker accepted. It was also around this time, specifically in 1878, that Stoker married aspiring actress Florence Balcombe. In addition to managing the Lyceum Theatre, Stoker also essentially managed the career of Henry Irving. 
Now, Irving at this time was the most well-known stage actor in the world, so managing him meant that Stoker would accompany him on his world tours and sometimes write up to 50 letters per day for him. Stoker would keep this position until Irving's death in 1906, and Stoker would pass himself six years later at the age of 64. And as for his writing career, by the time Stoker was hired by Irving, he'd already published several works, the first of which was a short story called The Crystal Cup, which was published in the London Society in 1872. Before publishing his most famous novel, it's said that Stoker met the Hungarian writer Armin Vambury, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, who would regale him with dark tales of the Carpathian Mountains. Now, following this meeting, Stoker spent several years researching Central and Eastern European folklore and mythological stories of vampires, which then led into his writing of the 1897 novel Dracula. Now, Dracula, of course, is a character that endures over 120 years later, but Stoker didn't live to see his creation receive that much acclaim. In fact, Dracula would begin to pick up steam after the 1922 film adaptation starring Bela Lugosi. Dracula was actually the second adaptation of the novel, with the first being F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. Nosferatu, however, was not an authorized adaptation, and Bram Stoker's widow Florence sued the filmmakers and asked that all prints be destroyed. She actually won that case eventually, and most of the copies were destroyed, but, as you are probably aware, one copy survived, which is why you can still find Nosferatu today. In all, Stoker published 13 novels, including one that was edited after his death, six works of nonfiction, three short story collections, and over 20 uncollected short stories. This week's story, A Star Trap, was first published in 1908 in Stoker's collection entitled Snowbound, the record of a theatrical touring party. And just another note about A Star Trap, it's told in a way that might be a little bit hard to follow on audio at first. And I say that because you can tell when you read the story that the story is being told by a character that exists in the story. Namely because the story itself opens with opening quotation marks. So you can see that the narrator is a character in the story rather than an omniscient observer. So keep that in mind when the story begins that a character in the story is narrating the bulk of this story. He's actually telling of something that he claimed to have seen several years before, and that'll come out in the story. This is not a spoiler of any kind. It's just a matter of uh, narrative. It makes it a little bit easier to understand. So, now that you know a little bit more about our new friends Caroline and Bram, let's move on to this week's feature presentations. The Hunters by Caroline Roberts the three hunters stalked through the trees, their footsteps carefully placed to minimize noise. The lead man slinked around a shadow, his tan deer hide dappling in the light. The thin piece covered only the bare necessities, but the other man and woman he traveled with weren't embarrassed. They donned similar outfits, each with a bag of arrows strapped on their back and a wooden curved bow held loosely in one hand. The man in charge carried a long stick with a sharpened rock tied to one end in his other hand. The savage tool was reserved for the only one strong enough to yield it. The Alpha grunted, holding up his hand to slow his two followers down. He motioned a few yards ahead where two squirrels were performing an intricate dance on a log. The bounty of summer had fattened the small animals, and the woman's stomach grumbled with the thought of the meat on their bones. 
It had been a full day since they'd eaten last. She knocked an arrow on her bow and slowly drew it back. Almost at its peak, the string betrayed her intentions with a small twang. The squirrels stopped skittering and stared in her direction, ears alert, their black eyes narrowed on the predator. The Alpha didn't have time to admonish his companion, but he whipped a pointed arrow onto his own weapon and shot both squirrels in quick succession before the woman had time to react. He didn't have the words to explain to her that she had waited too long again, but a frustrated look and low-pitched grunt as he walked towards their dinner did the job. One of the arrows had missed by a nanometer, and the squirrel was twitching on the ground. He walked over and decisively stabbed it through the eye with his spear, not wanting to spoil any of the meat. That night, the three sat in their usual silence around a crackling fire, each gnawing on a fatty piece of small game. The woman had gathered some greens while the other two had made the meager camp, and they munched on the bitter wild grass after the main course. The three were lit up by the light of brilliant stars bleeding through the thick dark of night. It was glorious, but an insatiable hunger distracted them from the wonder. It was hard to stargaze when a few pieces of meat from a small squirrel was all they had eaten after a day of trekking through the woods. The fire dwindled, and exhaustion overtook them. As the Alpha started to put out the flames, signaling it was time to sleep, he left the hot bed of coals burning to provide them comfort throughout the night, and the three stretched out in a triangle of bodies to receive warmth from the smoldering remains. Anyone approaching would have seen three hide-covered lumps, only noticing after scrutiny that there were living bodies underneath. No goodnight gestures were spared, as the three quickly fell into a dreamless rest. The rising sun woke the group hours later, harsh rays streaming into their eyes through clasped fingers. Sleep was their only respite from the hunger gnawing at their stomachs. They laid in their animal skins for a few minutes longer before the Alpha started to get up and shake off the creakiness. That was the cue for the others to move. They gathered themselves with only the occasional grunt to direct activity, and soon were ready to go. It was a hot day, and the sun beat down on the hunters' necks as they fought bush and bramble to carry on. The woman heard the tinkle of a small stream and tapped the leader on the back, motioning to her parched throat. He paused, annoyed, as if she had engineered her thirst to slow down the group. After a moment, with his jaw clenched, he relented and led the other two towards the sound of running water. They tried to move silently toward the stream. Animals often gathered at watering holes, and it could be a good opportunity to hunt for lunch. As they slinked through the trees, the woman forgot herself in the face of her thirst and almost missed the man in front turn around and motion for them to stop suddenly. The woman could only see the outline of a large animal through the bushes, but once the three moved up a few inches, her heart started beating faster. It was the game they were there to hunt, the prize of a lifetime. They might only have one shot at this, so they couldn't mess it up. She forgot about her dry throat and empty stomach and felt herself solely in the moment. The three fell into formation with the Alpha in front and the other man in back in case the animal tried to escape behind them. They snuck up on the animal, who was bent over and drinking water from the trickling stream. Each hunter had a hand on their arrow sheath, ready to draw at a moment's notice, but they all knew who would be the one to take the shot. The animal was engrossed in quenching its thirst and didn't look up as the three silently approached it. 
The sound of rushing water masked any small noises they made, and within a few moments the lead hunter was well within shooting range. He drew a deep breath in, notching an arrow with one fluid movement as he pulled the bow back to maximum tension. His weapon was of the top quality, but in the stress and hunger of the long hunt, he had forgotten to work the string to make it supple. It was tight, from a few days of sparse use, and as he pulled it back, it made a loud squeaking sound. The animal was startled and turned its head suddenly, its wide eyes filling with fear, when it noticed the predators. The Alpha let the arrow fly without hesitation, but his prey was too fast. The pointed stick whizzed past its head, but the animal scampered away before he could take another shot. He grimaced and was about to put his bow away to follow the animal's tracks, when another arrow flying from behind him narrowly missed his head, striking the fleeing animal in the back. He turned around in shock to see the woman standing with a lowered bow. There was a look of surprise in her eyes, too. She couldn't believe she had just defied him either. Her thirst for the kill had clouded her judgment. The whimpering sound of an animal in distress distracted the two from their standoff. She waited for his lead, following him toward the half-dead prey rolling around on the ground. When it saw them, it tried to drag itself away in a desperate attempt of self-preservation. The Alpha walked towards it slowly, with a sick expression on his face. The other two felt a chill go down their backs as they saw his enjoyment at watching the life slowly drain from the kill. Instead of using another sharpened arrow to quickly finish the job, he pulled his spear. The Alpha male matched the slow movements of the flopping animal. Each time it would get a few feet away from him, he would take a long, loping step. Finally, he decided to put an end to his barbaric game. He brought the spear up over his head and drove it down into the animal's midsection. It let out a loud grunt, its eyes focusing on something far in the distance. Its chest shuddered as it tried to take in deep breaths, but it slowly gave up the fight. The woman broke out in a gleeful smile, her feet skittering around in a muted happy dance. She was too malnourished from the stress of the past few days to fully celebrate, but her tired heart soared at the accomplishment. She puffed her chest, noting her own role in the kill. The Alpha had finished the animal off, but it was she who had struck the initial blow. The three stalked closer to the carcass, following the lead man. He poked at it once more with his spear, making sure it wouldn't fight back, then nodded, almost imperceptibly to himself. The task was done and there was only one thing left to do. The woman didn't notice him turned towards her with his spear still in hand, but she did flinch as he took threatening steps toward her. She looked at him in confusion, but didn't have time to utter a grunt as he sank the sharpened point into her chest. She sputtered, trying to pull the stone out of her body with feeble hands. The Alpha stood over her as she fell to the ground. The other man watched in shock, too frightened to help his comrade. If she had spent the past several days eating well and getting enough rest, the woman might have been able to fight back against the attack. But in her exhausted state, she closed her eyes and resigned herself to letting the life slowly drain out of her. The intense pain and gnawing hunger were crowded out by an overwhelming coldness, and she died with a smile on her face, finally relieved of discomfort. The Alpha didn't take pleasure in her kill. It was simply a necessity to maintain his position. He motioned to her lifeless remains with a careless flick of the wrist, indicating that the other man was to carry her out. Their job was done. It was time to leave the woods. 
The lead male heaved the carcass of the animal he had killed into his arms, shifting the weight to find a comfortable position. He wasn't exactly aware of his location, but he knew it was a long hike to their final destination. The two men walked in silence with their heads down, the second not daring to make a sound to his leader. The sun began to set, but they soldiered on, determined not to spend any more time in the wandering, twisted woods. Right as it grew almost too dark to continue, a welcome sound perked the Alpha's ears up. He hurried towards the symphony, not noticing the heavy weight over his shoulder anymore. The other man followed, though he wasn't as excited. The gleam of fading sunlight glinting off a dark surface caught the Alpha's eye, and he made a beeline straight towards what he knew was waiting for him. We did it! He spoke in perfect English to his companion as they both dropped what they were carrying in front of the sparkling Range Rover SUV waiting for them. It was the first word spoken in 48 hours, and the intelligent communication sounded foreign to both men. The follower felt disoriented when confronted with the same car they had driven there in, as though he had been living in the woods all his life. Sorry about that, the leader continued, gesturing to the body the other one had carried. You know it had to be done. The other man nodded, even though the death of the woman he had been in online chat rooms with for years made his stomach queasy. He loaded her body into a thick tarp waiting in the trunk as they turned their attention to the carcass the Alpha had in tow. The dead body laid on the ground with his eyes wide open in a look of shock. The man had died in disbelief of what was happening to him, and his expression showed that he had panicked till the end. The Alpha nudged him with an outstretched foot, careful not to get too close to the body that was emitting a foul smell. He's in good shape, the other man said, studying the thick muscles that knotted the corpse's arms and legs. They chose well this time. It's always more fun when it's a little harder. Last year's was too easy, the Alpha replied, nodding appreciatively. What do we do with her? the follower asked. He was prepared to go along with whatever his leader said, not wanting to risk the same fate as the woman. Well, let's just leave her in the car, he said. They'll clean it all up for us. Oh, they better, given the price, the other man grumbled. All right, uh, let's get him to the crematory center. I'll take the ashes. You get the teeth? The Alpha asked, and the two men discussed the arrangements while loading the body carefully into the back of the car. They chattered, making no attempt to hush their conversation as their words echoed throughout the Thousand Acre Preserve. They finished loading everything and got into the car to drive away, the Alpha at the wheel. They drove out on a bumpy road, but the elegant SUV handled the dirt path with ease. As the road turned into smooth pavement, they picked up speed, only slowing down to pass a small wooden guard shack. The Alpha looked into the tiny building, nodding at the man, alone inside. The gatekeeper smiled back, his black eyes glistening in the last fiery remains of light. Stoker. When I was apprenticed to theatrical carpentering, my master was John Halliday, who was master machinist, 
we called men in his post Master Carpenter in those days, of the old Victoria Theatre, Home. It wasn't called Home, but that name will do. It would only stir up painful memories if I were to give it the real name. I dare say some of you, not the ladies, this with a gallant bow all around, will remember the case of a harlequin as was killed in an accident in the pantomime. We needn't mention names. Uh, Mortimer will do for a name to call him by. Henry Mortimer. The cause of it was never found out, but I knew it, and I have kept silence for so long that I may speak now without hurting anyone. They're all dead long ago that was interested in the death of Henry Mortimer, or the man who wrought that death. Any of you who know the case will remember what a handsome, dapper, well-built man Mortimer was. To my own mind, he was the handsomest man I ever saw. The tragedian's low, grumbling whisper, That's a large order, sounded a warning note. Hempich, however, did not seem to hear it, but went on. Of course, I was only a boy then, and I hadn't seen any of you gentlemen. <laughs> Your very good health, Mr. Wellesley Davercourt, sir, and etc. I needn't tell you, ladies, how well a harlequin's dress sets off a nice slim figure. No wonder that in these days of suffragettes, women want to be harlequins as well as columbines. Though I hope they won't make the columbine a man's part. <laughs> Mortimer was the nimblest chap of the traps I ever saw. He was so sure of himself that he would have an extra weight put on so that when the counterweights fell, he'd shoot up five or six feet higher than anyone else could even try to. Moreover, he had a way of drawing up his legs when in the air, the way a frog does when he's swimming, that made his jump look ever so much higher. I think the girls were all in love with him, the way they used to stand in the wings when the time was coming for his entrance. That wouldn't have mattered much, for girls are always falling in love with some man or another, but... It made trouble, as it always does, when the married ones take the same start. There were several of these that were always after him, more shame for them, with husbands of their own. That was dangerous enough and hard to stand for a man who might mean to be decent in any way. But the real trial, and the real trouble, too, was none other than the young wife of my own master, and she was more than flesh and blood could stand. She had come into the panto the season before as a high kicker, and she could. She could kick higher than girls that was more than a foot taller than her. For she was a wee bit of a thing and as pretty as pie. A gold-haired, blue-eyed, slim thing with as much a figure of a boy, except for... Well, and they saved her from any mistaken idea of that kind. Jack Halliday went crazy over her. And when the notice was up and there was no young spark with plenty of oof coming along to do the proper thing by her, she married him. It was when they was joined what you ladies call a marriage of convenience. But after a bit, they too got on very well, as we all thought that she was beginning to like the old man, for Jack was old enough to be her father, with a bit to spare. In the summer, when the house was closed, he took her to the Isle of Man, and when they came back, he made no secret of it that he'd had the happiest time of his life. She looked quite happy too, and treated him affectionate, and we all began to think that that marriage had not been a failure at any rate. Things began to change, however, when the panto rehearsals began next year. Old Jack began to look eh, unhappy and didn't take no interest in his work. Lou, that was Mrs. Halliday's name, didn't seem over-fond of him now and was generally impatient when he was by. Nobody said anything about this, however, to us men, but the married women smiled and nodded their heads and whispered that perhaps there were reasons. One day on the stage, when the Harlequinade rehearsal was beginning, someone mentioned as how perhaps Mrs. Halliday wouldn't be dancing that year, and they smiled as if they was all in on the secret. Then Mrs. Jack ups and gives them the Johnny up the orchard for not minding their own business and telling a pack of lies, 
and such like as you ladies like to express in your own ways when you get your back hair down. The rest of us tried to soothe her all we could, and she went off home. It wasn't long after that that she and Henry Mortimer left together after rehearsal was over, he saying he'd leave her at home. And she didn't make any objections. I told you he was a very handsome man. Now, from that time on, she never seemed to take her eyes from him during every rehearsal, right up to the night of that last rehearsal, which, of course, was full dress, everybody and everything. Jack Halliday never seemed to notice anything that was going on like the rest of them did. True, his time was taken up with his own work, for I'm telling you that a master machinist hasn't got no loose time on his hands at the first dress of a rehearsal for a panto. And of course, none of the company ever said a word or gave a look that would call his attention to it. Uh, men and women are queer beings. They will be blind and deaf whilst danger is being run, and it's only after the scandal is beyond repair that they begin to talk, just the very time when most of all they should be silent. I saw all that went on, but I didn't understand it. I liked Mortimer myself, and admired him, uh, like I did Mrs. Halliday too, and I thought he was a very fine fellow. I was only a boy, you know, and Halliday's apprentice, so naturally I wasn't looking for any trouble I could help, even if I'd seen it coming. It was when I looked back afterwards at the whole thing that I began to comprehend. So you'll all understand now, I hope, that what I tell you is the result of much knowledge of what I saw and heard and was told afterwards, all mortised and clamped up by thinking. Now, the panto had been on about three weeks, when one Saturday, between the shows, I heard two of our company talking. Both of them was uh, among the extra girls that both sang and danced and had to make themselves useful. I don't think either of them was better than she should be. Now, they went out too many champagne suppers with the young men that had money to burn. That part doesn't matter in this affair, except that they was naturally enough jealous of women who was married, which was what they was aiming at, and what lived straighter than they did. Women of that kind like to see a good woman tumble down, and it seems to make them all more even. Now, real bad girls would have gone under altogether, will try to save a decent one from following their road, that is, so long as they're young. For a bad one, what's long in the tooth is the limit. They'll help anyone downhill, so long as they get anything out of it. No offense, you ladies, as growed up. Uh, these two girls was enjoying themselves over Mrs. Halliday and the mask she had set up on Mortimer. They didn't see that I was sitting on the stage box behind a built-out piece of prologue on the panto which was ready for the night. And they were both in love with Mortimer, who wouldn't look at either of them. So they was meowing cruel, like cats on the tiles. Says one, the old man seems worse than blind, he won't see. Don't you be too sure of that, says the other. He don't mean to take no chances. I think you must be blind too, Kissy. That was her name on the bills anyhow, Kissy Montpeeler. Don't he make a point of taking her home himself every night after the play? You should know, for you're in the hall yourself, waiting for the young man till he comes up from his club. Ah, you bally geezer, says the other, which her language was mostly coarse. Don't you know there's two ends to everything? The old man looks to one end only. Then they began to snicker and whisper, and presently the other one says, Then he thinks harm can only be done when work is over. Just so, she answers. Her and him knows that the old man has to be down long before the rising of the rag, but she didn't come in till the vision of the Venus dance after halftime, and he not till the harlequinade. Then I quit. I didn't want to hear any more of that sort. All that week, things went on as usual. Poor old Halliday wasn't well. He looked worried and had a devil of a temper. Well, I had reason to know that, for what worried him was his work. He was always a hard worker, and the panto season was a terror with him. He had never seemed to mind anything else outside his work. I thought at the time that was how those two chattering girls made up their slanderous story, for, after all, a slander, no matter how false it may be, must have some sort of beginning. 
Something that seems, if there isn't something that is. But no matter how busy he might be, old Jack always made time to leave the wife at home. As the week went on, he got more and more pale, and I began to think he was in for some sickness. He generally remained in the theater between the shows on a Saturday. That is, he didn't go home, but took a high tea in the coffee shop close to the theater, so as to be handy in case there might be a hitch anywhere in the preparation for night. On that Saturday, he went out as usual when the first scene was set, and the men were getting ready the packs for the rest of the scenes. By and by, there was some trouble, the usual Saturday kind, and I went off to tell him. When I went into the coffee shop, I couldn't see him. I thought best not to ask or to seem to take any notice, so I came back to the theater and heard that trouble had settled itself as usual by the men who had been quarreling going off to have another drink. I hustled up those that remained, and we got things smoothed out in time for them to all have their tea. Then I had my own. I was just then beginning to feel the responsibility of my business, so I wasn't long over my food but came back to look things over and see that all was right, especially the trap, for that was the thing Jack Halliday was the most particular about. He would overlook a fault for anything else, but if it was along of a trap, the man had to go. He always told the men that it wasn't no ordinary work. It was life or death. I had just got through my inspection when I saw old Jack coming in from the hall. There was no one about at that hour, and the stage was dark. But dark as it was, I could see the old man was ghastly pale. I didn't speak, for I wasn't near enough. And as he was moving very silently behind the scenes, I thought that perhaps he wouldn't like anyone to notice that he had been away. I thought the best thing I could do was to be clear out of the way, so I went back and had another cup of tea. I came away a little before the men who had nothing to think of except to be in their places when Halliday's whistle sounded. I went to report myself to my master, who was in his own little glass partition den at the back of the carpenter's shop. He was there, bent over his own bench, and was filing away at something so intently that he did not seem to hear me, so I cleared out. I tell you, ladies and gents, that from an apprentice point of view, it is not wise to be too obtrusive when your master is attending to some private matter of his own. Well, when the get-ready time came and the lights went up, there was Halliday, as usual, at his post. He looked very white and ill, so ill that the stage manager, when he came in, said to him that if he'd like to go home and rest, he would see that all his work would be attended to. He thanked him and said that he thought he would be able to stay. I do feel a little weak and ill, sir, he said. I felt just now for a few moments as if I was going to faint, but that's gone by already and I'm sure I'll be able to get through the work before us all right. And the doors was open and Saturday night audience came rushing and tumbling in. The Victoria was a great Saturday night house. No matter what other nights might be, that was sure to be good. They used to say in the Perfish that the Victoria lived on it and that the management was on holiday for the rest of the week. The actors knew it, and no matter how slack they might be from Monday to Friday, they was all taut and trim then. There was no walking through and no fluffing on Saturday nights, or else they'd have had the bird. Mortimer was one of the most particular of the lot in this way. He was never slack at any time. Indeed, slackness is not a Harlequin's fault, for if there's slackness, there's no Harlequin, that's all. But Mortimer always put an extra bit on the Saturday night. When he jumped through that star trap, he always went then a couple feet higher. To do this, we always had to put on a lot more weight. This he always saw to himself, for, mind you, it's no joke being driven up through this trap as if he was shot out of a gun. The points of the star had to be kept free, and the hinges at their bases must be well oiled, or else there can be a disaster at any time. Moreover, tis the duty of someone appointed for the purpose to see that all is clear upon the stage. I remember hearing once that at New York, many years ago, a harlequin was killed by a grip, as the Yankees call a carpenter, 
what outsiders here call a scene shifter, walking over the trap just as the stroke had been given to let go of the counterweights. It wasn't much satisfaction to the widow to know that the grip was killed too. That night, Mrs. Halliday looked prettier than ever and kicked even higher than I had ever seen her do. Then, when she got dressed for home, she came as usual and stood in the wings for the beginning of the Harlequinade. Old Jack came across the stage and stood beside her. I saw him from the back follow up the sliding ground row that closed in on the realms of delight. I couldn't help but notice that he still looked ghastly pale. He kept turning his eyes on the star trap. And seeing this, I naturally looked at it too, for I feared lest there might have something gone wrong. Well, I had seen that it was in good order and that the joints were properly oiled when the stage was set for the evening show, and as it wasn't used all night for anything else, I was reassured. Indeed, I thought I could see it shine a bit as the limelight caught the brass hinges. There was a spotlight just above it in the bridge, which was intended to make a good show of the Harlequin and his big jump. The people used to howl with delight as he came rushing up through the trap and went in the air, drew up his legs and spread them wide for an instant, and then straightened them again as he came down, only bending his knees as he touched the stage. Now, when the signal was given, the counterweight worked properly. I knew, for the sound of it, that that part was all right. But something was wrong. The trap didn't work smooth and open at once as the harlequin's head touched it. There was a shock and a tearing sound, and the pieces of the star seemed torn about, and some of them were thrown about on the stage. And in the middle of them came the colored and spangled figure that we knew. But somehow it didn't come up the usual way. It was erect enough, but there was not the usual elasticity. The legs never moved, and when it went up a fair height, though nothing like usual, it seemed to topple over and fall on the stage on its side. The audience shrieked, and the people in the wings, actors and staff all the same, closed in, some of them in their stage clothes, others dressed for going home. But the man in the spangles uh, lay quite still. The loudest shriek of all was from Mrs. Halliday, and she was the first to reach the spot where he, it, lay. Old Jack was close behind her and caught her as she fell. I had just time to see that, for I made it my business to look after the pieces of the trap. There was plenty of people to look after the corpse, and the pit was by now crossing the orchestra and climbing up on the stage. I managed to get the bits together before the rush came. I noticed that there were deep scratches on some of them, but I didn't have time for more than a glance. I put a stage box over the hole lest anyone should put a foot through it. Such would mean a broken leg at least, and if one fell through it might mean worse. Amongst other things, I found a queer-looking piece of flat steel with some bent points on it. I knew it didn't belong to the trap, but it came from somewhere, so I put it in my pocket. By this time there was a crowd where Mortimer's body lay, that he was stone dead, nobody could doubt. The very attitude was enough. He was all straggled about in queer positions. One of the legs was doubled under him with the toes sticking out of the wrong way. Uh, but let that suffice. It doesn't do to go into details of a dead body. Uh, I wish someone would give me a drop of punch. Oh, well... There was another crowd round Mrs. Halliday, who was lying a little on one side near the wings where her husband had carried her and laid her down. She too looked like a corpse, for she was as white as one and as still and looked as cold. Old Jack was kneeling beside her, chafing her hands. He was evidently frightened about her, for he too was deathly white. However, he kept his head and called his men round him. He left his wife in care of Mrs. Holmcroft, the wardrobe mistress, who had by this time hurried down. 
She was a capable woman and knew how to act promptly. She got one of the men to lift Mrs. Halliday and carry her to the wardrobe. I heard afterwards that when she got there, she turned out all the rest of them that followed up, the women as well as the men, and looked after her herself. I put the pieces of the broken trap on top of the stage box and told one of our chaps to mine them and see that no one touched them, as they might be wanted. By this time, the police, who had only been on duty in front, had come round, and as they had at once telephoned to headquarters, more police kept coming in all the time. One of them took charge of the place where the broken trap was, and when he heard who put the box and the broken pieces there, he sent for me. More of them took the body away to the property room, which was a large room with benches in it and which could be locked up. Two of them stood at the door and wouldn't let anyone go in without permission. The man who was in charge of the trap asked me if I had seen the accident. When I said I had, he asked me to describe it. I don't think he had much opinion of my powers of description, for he soon dropped that part of his questioning. Then he asked me to point out where I found the bits of broken trap, and I simply said, Lord bless you, sir, I couldn't tell. They were scattered all over the place. I had to pick them up between people's feet as they were rushing in from all sides. All right, my boy, he said in a kindly way for a policeman. I don't think they'll want to worry you. There are lots of men and women, I am told, who were standing by and saw the whole thing. They will all be subpoenaed. I was a small-made lad in those days, well, I ain't a giant now, and I suppose he thought it was no use having children for witnesses when they had plenty of grown-ups. Then he said something about me in an idiot asylum that was not kind, no, nor wise either, for I dried up and did not say another word. Now, gradually, the public was got rid of. Some strolled off by degrees, going off to have a glass before the pubs closed and talk it all over. Now, the rest of us and the police ballooned out. Then, when the police had taken charge of everything and put in men to stay all night, the coroner's officer came up and took off the body to the city mortuary, where the police doctor made a post-mortem. I was allowed to go home. I did so, and gladly, when I had seen the place settling down. Mr. Halliday took his wife home in a four-wheeler. It was perhaps just as well, for Mrs. Holmcroft and some other kindly souls had poured so much whiskey and brandy and rum and gin and beer and peppermint into her, I don't believe she could have walked if she had tried. When I was undressing myself, something scratched my leg as I was taking off my trousers. I found it was the piece of flat steel which I had picked up on the stage. It was in the shape of a starfish, but the spikes of it were short. Some of the points were turned down, the rest were pulled out straight again. I stood with it in my hand, wondering where it had come from and what it was for, but I couldn't remember anything in the whole theater that it could have belonged to. I looked at it quite closely again and saw that the edges were all filed and quite bright. But that did not help me, so I put it on the table and thought that I would take it with me in the morning. Perhaps one of the chaps might know. I turned out the gas and went to bed. And to sleep. I must have begun to dream at once, and it was, naturally enough, all about the terrible thing that had occurred. But like all dreams, it was a bit mixed. They were all mixed. Mortimer with his spangles flying up the trap, it breaking and the pieces scattering around. Old Jack Halliday looking at the one side of the stage with his wife beside him, he as pale as death and she looking prettier than ever, and then Mortimer coming down all crooked and falling on the stage, Mrs. Halliday shrieking and her and Jack running forward and me picking up the pieces of the broken trap between people's legs and finding the steel star with the bent points. I woke in a cold sweat, saying to myself as I sat up in bed in the dark, that's it! And then my head began to reel about so that I lay down again and began to think it all over. And it seemed clear enough then. It was Mr. Halliday who made that star and put it over the star trap where the points joined. 
That was what Jack Holliday was filing at when I saw him at his bench. And he had done it because Mortimer and his wife had been making love to each other. Those girls were right after all. Of course, the steel points had prevented the trap from opening, and when Mortimer was driven up against it, his neck was broken. But then came the horrible thought that if Jack did it, it was murder, and he would be hung. And after all, it was his wife that the Harlequin had made love to, and old Jack loved her very much indeed, himself, and had been good to her, and she was his wife, and that bit of steel would hang him if it should be known. But no one but me, and whoever made it, and put it on the trap, even knew of its existence. And Mr. Halliday was my master. And the man was dead. And he was a villain. Now, I was then living at Quarry Place. And in the old quarry was a pond so deep that the boys used to say that far down the water was boiling hot. It was so near hell. Now, I softly opened the window and, there in the dark, threw that bit of steel as far as I could into the quarry. No one ever knew, for I have never spoken a word of it till this very minute. I was not called at the inquest. Everyone was in a hurry. The coroner and the jury and the police. Our governor was in a hurry too, because we wanted to go on as usual that night, and too much talk of the tragedy would hurt business. So nothing was known, and all went on as usual, except that after Mrs. Halliday didn't stand in the wings during the Harlequinade, and she was as loving to her old husband as a woman can be. <laughs> it was him she used to watch now and always with a sort of respectful adoration. She knew, though no one else did, well, except her husband and me. When he finished, there was a big spell of silence. The company had all been listening intently, so that there was no change except the cessation of Hempich's voice. The eyes of all were now fixed on Mr. Wellesley Dovercourt. It was the role of the tragedian to deal with such an occasion. He was quite alive to the privileges of his status, and spoke at once. Mm, very excellent indeed. You will have to join the ranks of our profession, Mr. Master Machinist. The lower ranks, of course. A very thrilling narrative yours, and distinctly true. There may be some errors of detail, such as that Mrs. Halliday never flirted again. I, I knew John Halliday, under, of course, his real name. But I shall preserve the secret you so judiciously suppressed, a very worthy person. He was stage carpenter at Duke's Theatre, Bolton, where I first dared histrionic triumphs in the year. <clears throat> I saw quite a good deal of Mrs. Halliday at that time, and you are wrong about her, quite wrong. She was a most attractive little woman. Very. The wardrobe mistress here whispered to the second old woman, Well, ma'am, they seem a going of it tonight. I think they must have catched the infection from Mr. Blow's. There's an abally word of truth in all Hempitch's said. I was there when the accident occurred, for it was an accident when Jim Bungnose, the clown, was killed. For he was a clown, not a harlequin, and there was no love-making with Mrs. Alliday. God help the woman who would try to make love to Jim, which she was the strong woman in a circus, and could put up her dukes like a man. Moreover, there wasn't no Mrs. Alliday. The carpenter of Grimsby, where it is he means, was Tom Elrington, and he was my first husband. And as to Mr. Dovercourt remembering... He's a cure, he is, and the limit. The effect of the master machinist's story was so depressing that the M.C. tried to hurry things on. Any change of sentiment would, he thought, be an advantage. So he bustled along. Now, Mr. Turner Smith, you are next on the roster. It is a pity we have not an easel and a canvas and a paint box here, or even some cartridge pager and a charcoal, so that you might give us a touch of your art. 
what I may call a plastic diversion of the current of narrative genius which has been enlivening the snowy waste around us. The artistic audience applauded this flight of metaphor, all except the young man from Oxford, who contented himself by saying loudly, Pip-pip! He had heard something like it before at the Union. The scene painter saw coming danger, for the tragedian had put down his pipe and was clearing his throat, so he at once began. So, what do we learn from this week's stories? Well, whether you're going on a hunting trip or working in a theater, be careful of those with whom you choose to hang out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. And next time on the show, we're going to hear from an old friend that we've only heard from once before. And he's got so much more left to say that I couldn't keep him off the show any longer. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If you've got a request for a short story, or if you've written your own short story that you want to submit to the show, you can do that through any of the social media channels, or you can email me at syypodcast at gmail.com. 